Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal, Brent. When I first fell in love with rock and roll as a young man, I pretty much immediately bought into the romance of being in a band. Because of this, I naturally wanted to start one of my own and experience it all. I wanted to practice in a garage. I wanted to design flyers for shows. I wanted to have the band's name on a bass drum head. Fortunately, once I entered high school, I was able to find like-minded individuals that shared some of those same desires. But unfortunately, we happened to live in a town that wasn't all that into the specific brand of rock and roll we were attempting to play. The local bands that did well in our tiny scene, if you even want to call it that, were those that were more closely aligned with the popular taste of the day. This was the late 90s and early 2000s, a time in which new metal bands and stuff like Creed and 311 were getting heavy rotation on the radio and MTV, artists that we couldn't have been further away from. We loved the Beatles and Pavement, and I in particular was quite obsessed with the indie pop scene that was then going on in Athens, Georgia. Athens, for most of us, loomed large in our hearts and minds, and with it only being two hours away, the goal of the band, really the dream, would be to one day play a show there. And lucky for us, we had an inn. My bandmate James had a cool older sister that lived in Athens and was friends with some of the people involved in the local scene. Eventually, she was able to help us get a gig. The show would be at a place called the Ultramod Compound, which was essentially someone's house and would take place towards the end of the summer, just a few weeks before we were all to go off to separate colleges. I can still remember the day of the show, arriving into town, and spotting Jeff Mangum of Neutral Milk Hotel, just walking down the street like a normal person. And then we get to the show, and I start seeing all these people from bands I loved, like Great Lakes of Montreal and Elf Power, just hanging out like normal people as well. It was really exciting, but then I realized that I actually had to play music in front of them, so that was really intimidating. But nevertheless, we played, and it went great. We played really well that night, which was not always the case with us, but this time we really rose to the occasion. It was, for us, an unequivocal moment of triumph. But those feelings of victory quickly dissipated after we discovered that Chris, our drummer and my best friend, had locked his keys in the car. We spent the rest of the night outside with our equipment, waiting for a locksmith to show up, which ended up being around 2 a.m. I'm pretty sure we broke up the next week. We had our moment of glory, and then it was gone. When I reflect back on the whole experience, I can't help but see the symbolism in it all. It was our true moment of glory, but it was just that. A moment. What we saw as the possible beginnings of greater things to come was in the end the finale of our time together as a band. It's a story not all that dissimilar from that of the Youngstown, Ohio band 
the human beings, they too would experience a true moment of glory, albeit on a much, much larger scale. And like all moments of glory, theirs did eventually fade. But while they were in it, they did manage to produce the immortal classic that is the song, Nobody But Me. It's hard to say when it was that I first heard the human beings because Nobody But Me is just one of those songs that seems to have always existed. As someone with baby boomer parents that spent a lot of the 90s listening to oldies radio, it was inescapable. But for good reason, as it's kind of a perfect pop song. But I never really thought about it beyond that. It was just one of a number of great songs from that era by bands that were sort of nameless to me as a casual listener. That all changed for me during my early 20s after getting really into the Nuggets compilation and sort of rediscovering my love of this very specific type of pop song. And then I heard their track Dance On Through and thought that this was a band I should probably explore further. So I decided to dive in. I put on the Human Beings 1968 debut full-length, Nobody But Me, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Hello, my name is Ting. I was the uh, rhythm guitar player and backup vocals for the group The Human Beings. band was from Youngstown, Ohio. I was playing, you know, various bands in the 60s, uh, working up to the, the last band I was in. But, uh, you know, there were so many clubs to play. You could play every night of the week and not repeat a club for over a month. It was just, it was just amazing, you know, and uh, the city stayed up late. I'd go to other cities and, you know, I'm like 11 o'clock and I'm, you know, everything's done. And I'm thinking, hey, you know, usually we're just getting ready to party back in Youngstown. <laughs> Joe Ting Markelin would experience an idyllic childhood while growing up in Youngstown, Ohio. Situated in the northeastern region of the state, Youngstown, like a number of Midwestern cities, would flourish during the first half of the 20th century due in part to the presence of the steel industry. Uh, Youngstown, back in the 60s, was approximately 100,000 people living in the city and then the suburbs surrounding. So it was, you know, it was a fair-sized uh, city. And the, one of the cool things about Youngstown was it actually had its own amusement park, which, you know, when you're growing up, uh, you know, I, I really didn't know about so to speak, the outside world. I just, I just knew Youngstown, and I thought every city was the same. It wasn't, in, it wasn't until I started traveling with the band that I realized there were a lot of 
special things in Youngstown that, that a lot of other cities didn't have to offer. We have one of the biggest parks in the city. It's bigger than Central Park. It, you know, it's called Mill Creek Park, and it's just absolutely beautiful. So, uh, you know, I mean, things like that, we, uh, we're a mill town. You know, uh, when, when the mills were going strong, the city was growing strong. During his adolescence, Markelin would become enamored with rock and roll, which would eventually lead to him learning to play the guitar. When I actually started playing the guitar, I was about 12. And uh, what happened was Elvis Presley happened to me. Okay, I, uh, I saw him, and uh, I, I wanted to be him. I was buying all his records. I could lip sync with Elvis perfectly. And uh, what I'd do is my, my uncle had taken guitar lessons. He had an old acoustic guitar sitting in the corner of the house. So I'd pick that up put on Elvis records and stand in front of a mirror and hop around like, you know, <laughs> I've kind of, it's kind of, I mean, it's funny now, but if anybody would have seen me then I'd have been so embarrassed, but uh, <laughs> that's kind of how I started. But, you know, I really didn't know how to play the guitar. Uh, I had a friend that lived a few houses up the street from me that was, he was uh, like three years older than me, but he was starting a, a rock and roll band. He was a drummer. He got some guys together, so of course that's where I started hanging out all the time, watching these people, you know, playing music, and and I loved it. So I started watching, and uh, one guitar player would show me chords, you know, and I'd go home and and I'd bang on that acoustic, and uh, that's kind of how I learned. And then uh, I got into that band eventually because their rhythm guitar player that was better than me, but he had an alcohol problem. You know, I mean, the kid's only 15, 16, and he's already drinking way too much. So anyhow, they, they got rid of him and got me, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I, you know, I, I messed up every song. Uh, but it was part of paying the dues, you know, to, to getting someplace. And uh, I really had to learn then because the pressure was on me to, uh, you know, be a part of the band in the, you know, I hated messing up and getting those icy stares from people. <laughs> it is through the Youngstown music scene that Markelin would meet his future bandmates, guitarist Dick Belly, bassist Mel Pachuda, and drummer Gary Coates. By 1964, I was in a band called the Epics, which we weren't, but, uh, you, you know, we were playing out, and there was a band called the Premiers in Youngstown that was just absolutely, you know, people were loving them. They're flocking to see them. Well, I went to see them, and, you know, it was just two guitars, bass, and drums. The lead guitar player was the lead singer, and he was really, really good. I knew the lead singer from school. He was a a year or two under me, underclassmen. We both went to, uh, you know, the same school on the west side of Youngstown. So my band, our drummer got sick one night. So somebody knew their drummer called and asked him if he could sit in that night with us. And he said, yeah, well, he's watching me all night. And I'm thinking, this is kind of strange. You know, I got the kind of uneasy feeling like, you know, I don't know what's going on. Well, you know, we, we got done. He said he really had a good time and, you know, 
he said he'd talk to me another night, you know, whatever. So like three days later, I get a phone call. Now, now the premieres, their rhythm guitar player is quitting because he was putting on dances at a hall where, where the premieres were playing. And he was making so much money just off the gate that he didn't want to play anymore. He just wanted to make the money up there. So they were looking for a rhythm guitar player. And that's why that drummer was watching me all night. And he went back and told them they ought to give me a try. So they called me and said, hey, would you want to try out with the premieres? And I was like to myself, are you kidding me? <laughs> I, you know, I, I dreamt about being in that band. I, you know, and then I started getting nervous about, oh, I don't know, these guys might throw me out, you know, once they hear me. But it worked. It clicked as soon as I went over there. It clicked. You know, the band, not because of me, but I guess from us working together, you know, and in, in, uh, practicing a lot, we got better and better. And then the next thing I know, uh, you know, the whole area, we were, we were like the top band in the whole area. And, you know, we're looking at each other like, how did this happen? Having begun to make a name for themselves within the local scene, the premieres would receive an opportunity to play for larger crowds on the condition that they changed a key aspect to their act. So uh, we're playing at a club called the Grist Mill. It's in a bowling alley. You know, it's a lounge in a bowling alley. Well, what happened was uh, uh, another band was the house band there. They got sick or something, and they called us and said, hey, could you guys fill in for us tonight? And we said, sure, you know, we'll do it. Yeah, no problem. Well, we played that night, and the other band got fired. And and uh, they had us for the house band. Well, the place wasn't that big to begin with. And they were, it was just overflowing, you know, with crowds when we played there. So the manager said he had a banquet hall in the basement of the bowling alley. You know, they did uh, weddings and parties and things like that. And he said, I'm going to put a nightclub down there. And we said, okay, you know. He said, I want you to be the house band. And we said, well, that's fine. He said, but I'm not going to use you if, if you don't change the name of your band. He goes, no, he says, the premieres is outdated. He said, this sounds like something from the 50s or the early 60s. He said, you guys are doing so much British music now. He said, you need a, a name that's current. You need something, you know. He said, so I'm giving you two weeks to come up with a name. He said, uh, if you do that, you know, you're in. So we, you know, we played around with every name we could think of. You know, we're like sitting around and, and we named every animal under the sun. And, you know, we went through all that. And I think it was the bass player. He said, what are we going to do? We're just human beings. It's kind of like it got silent. We all looked at each other and said, let's go with that. The human beings. So we took it back to the fellow, and he loved it. Now, see, the, the name was actually Beings, B-I-N-G-Z. You know, uh, we put a Z on the end for a little flare instead of the S. But anyhow, a new room was going to be called the gazebo room. He had a gazebo in the back of the room that was VIPs. We're playing upstairs as the premieres. And all these signs are saying you know, the human beings are coming. And everybody's going, who are the human what, what is this? Who are the human beings? And uh, we still had short hair, you know, the regular hairstyles of the time. And uh, so we went out and bought wigs. 
And uh, we played the night before the grand opening up upstairs at the gristmill as the premieres the next night. We had on wigs and we came out as, as human beings and the people went crazy. Oh, it's you guys, you know, because we acted like we had no idea what was going on. And then they were, you know, they were trying to pull the wigs off of our heads and everything. But uh, then we let our hair grow finally. And, and uh, that's kind of how the human beings came into existence. Drummer Gary Coates would eventually leave the band, being replaced by Mike Tapman. And by 1966, the human beings would be dominating the local scene. As a means of generating a larger profit, the band would begin recording and selling singles at their shows. Originally working at Gateway Recordings in Pittsburgh, and then later at Cleveland Recording in Cleveland, the singles would consist solely of covers, including tracks by The Who, Bob Dylan, and The Yardbirds. Youngstown, to this day, is a cover town, okay? I mean, if you've got maybe one or two originals, you could stick in there. They might let you get away with that. If, if they don't recognize a song and you start playing it, their attention span's gone. We never wrote anything. We just played covers. We were a bar band, basically. We did all covers. We did... Uh, mostly Rolling Stones. You know, we did uh, a lot of groups from England. You know, we did uh, the Animals, the Who, the Yardbirds. We used to do Yardbird stuff. It was just all kind of like the, the rock of the mid-60s, you know. And we were trying to figure out ways to make money, you know, besides enjoying, you know, and loving music, you still need to make money. The purpose for making those records was to sell them at the dances and the clubs you know we paid for it and it was our project and you know we, we bought like a thousand of them and then we sold them but it was never to be discovered we did not have that in mind we were just gonna like you know milk the local thing as long as we could i had aspirations but they were basically local uh See, when, when uh, I saw a rock and roll show back in, I don't know, gee, 57 or something like that, I'd had uh, so many people on there, Little Richard and Dwayne Eddy and, I mean, Eddie Cochran, all these people, they all come out and did one song and ran off the stage. And I was just totally blown away. But it, the, the place they did that is called Stanbaugh Auditorium. And it kind of looks like the old uh, Greek structures you know, with the big pillars out front and everything. And that was my dream to be able to play on that stage, you know. And then 
we did it. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we opened for uh, Mitch Ryder at Detroit Wheels. It is through a local fan that the band would eventually come to the attention of the major label, Capitol Records. We were like celebrities in our own hometown. Now, I'm not saying any of this braggingly. I mean, you know, this stuff happened. And uh, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, that Idora Park, the uh, amusement park, had a big ballroom. And that was the place to play as far as teen dances went. All the bands wanted to get in there. And we weren't playing there because we had that other thing on Friday night that was in uh, competition with them. And we were killing them. So they called me, the own, you know, owners of Bidora Park, they called me and they said, we would like you to play, you know, at our dances here. And I said, okay. I said, uh, how much do you pay? And they said, well, we pay union scale, which at the time for a four-piece band would have been $60 to split. I, you know, I told, I said, well, we don't, we don't play for that kind of money. He said, what do you mean? He says, uh, you know, the top bands in the area, that's all they play for a scale. And I said, well, then get the other top bands in the area because I'm not going to do it. And they're like, but this is Idor Park. I said, I don't care. I said, he goes, well, how much do you want? I said, we want 200, which is a lot of money back then, you know, for especially for a band. And he goes, you're nothing but an effing crook. I said, all right. Well, I said, "Um, sorry, we can't come to an agreement. I said, but we'll just keep playing across town and kicking your ass every Friday night if that's the way you want it. So he said, uh, you'll never play here. I said, okay, they hung up on me. So they called me back a couple weeks later because their their dances had become dismal. And uh, the guy says, all right. He says, look, he said, I'm calling you back. He says, I want to ask you a few questions. I said, okay, I'm ready. He said, $200 is a lot of money. I said, yeah, but I said, I'm guaranteeing you, you're going to get a crowd in there. At the time, I said, you charge 50 cents a head to get in to the, you know, the dance. He goes, yeah. I said, and you're going to get at least 1,500 people when we play there. I said, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you're going to get at least 1,500 people. I said, so that's what? That's $750 right there? He goes, Yeah. I said, I'm not even asking for a part of the concessions. He's like, where did you come from? I said, said, well, you know, we're trying to look at this uh, as a business. I said, so I'm asking for 200, you know, flat rate and and you keep everything else. Because what they did was they'd make us take a long break, like an hour, hour and a half. We'd play a set, take an hour, hour and a half break and then finish up with a set. Because they wanted them walking out on the midway, paying to get on the rides, you know, and, and all that. So we knew that. So uh, anyhow, we, we showed up, and the first night we played there, they had 3,000 kids. And we did that steadily, you know. So we were, we were doing pretty good, you know, for local men. So anyhow, uh, we had so many fans. This one kid, and he is responsible for us getting signed with Capital worked at a record store 
was in a, in a plaza and conveniently it was called Plaza Records. But, uh, you know, he was always with us and loved us. So he told me, he says, hey, this Capitol rep always comes in, you know, talks to me and stuff. He said, I've been telling about you guys. He said, but you're going to have to be there, corner him and get him to make a commitment to come out and whatever. I said, well, call me the next time he, you know, he shows up, call me as soon as he gets there. So he did that. And I ran up and talked to him. He agreed to come to a club on a certain night, you know, and, and listen to us. He came and listened to us and he said, uh, he said, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm calling Capitol Tower in the morning. He said, we, we got to do something with you guys. She said, uh, you guys are great. So anyhow, um, we get a call from a talent scout that he's going to come in a certain day. So, you know, we have it all set up and we played, we played that night and he took us in the kitchen. This was a small little dingy club. He took us back in this greasy kitchen and says, I'm signing you guys to Capitol. And we were like, really? He goes, yeah. He said, I, I, I hear something I like. He said, I think we can do something. And then uh, he said, I just came from Tucson. And uh, yesterday, he said, I signed a group called the Stone Ponies. But that's how we got signed on Capitol was thanks to our friend. His name is George Ruscher. He got us to in, you know. And uh, other than that, I don't think anybody, I know, you know, nobody comes to Youngstown to discover bands which is bad because there's some good groups in that city but you know that's how it goes after signing with capital the band would enter cleveland recording in the summer of 67 to record their debut single for the label producing the sessions would be lex diazavedo the same talent scout that signed the band son of alice king of the big band era vocal group the king sisters Diazavedo would go on to produce a number of records for Capitol and find further success later on as a composer for film. We were going to record, and we were going to record a song nobody even probably even remembers. It was on a Sonny and Cher album. It was called You Don't Love Me. And we did it live really well. It had a nice riff. It's da 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 It really worked out live nice but we got in the studio to do that and for three hours we tried coming up with the sound and it was just you know it just wasn't happening and so lex you know he he called us into the booth he goes it's just not working he said you guys are you're getting really uptight he said what i want you to do is go back in there and play something that you guys like to just jam on and loosen up a little bit, you know, and, and just forget about what was going on. He said, just just get loose a little, you know, and just let go. So, you know, we just changed the dances on Nobody But Me because it was such a hot number live. But it was, you know, you it was too late in the 60s to be saying mashed potatoes and twist. There were all these new dances out, so we stuck them in there. And I said, let's do that. Let's do Nobody But Me. It had like a... I don't know, maybe a three or four minute jam in the middle of it. And uh, so we went in there and we did Nobody But Me, you know, and we did our long version and we got done and he clicks on the microphone. He goes, that's the song. We're, we're going to do that song. He said, that's a hit. 
He said, but the thing of it is, you got to take that whole middle out of there and scrap it. He says, you know, because we, we need a song that's a little over two minutes long. That's what the radio wants. So that's, you know, that's how nobody but me ended up being the uh, song that, you know, we, we were going to release first. It is while waiting on the release of the Nobody But Me single that issues of control would begin to emerge between the band and their label, the first of which being a change to the band's name. While B-ins were going on at the time, Capital thought that would be a good, you know, way to kind of like say we're cool with the times and everything. And I mean, I was hot. I was upset. I said, we are not the human beings. We are the human beings. And uh, so they, they said, well, okay. You know, I said, I saw it on the contract and I said, this has to be changed. And they're like, well, go ahead. Just, you know, sign the contract and we'll change it. You know, when they come back to uh, California, to Hollywood. I said, okay. I said, but I'm, I'm serious. So anyhow, they always send the pressings out before they release it, you know, so you can hear it, see it, whatever. So we get the we get the 45s and it says human beings on it. And I called and I said, hey, you were supposed to change this to beings. Oh, really? I said, yeah, it's supposed to have a G in there. I said, I, I don't don't release it like this. They said, look, we've already ran off 50,000 copies. We're not going to change anything. The only thing we can do is if this record doesn't go. We'll put it in on the next release. So it was kind of like, you know, what can you do? There's nothing else you can do. So, you know, so it, and, and it became a hit. So we got stuck with, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, it's water over the dam now. It's been so long. But at the time, you know, we were pretty upset because it really was, wasn't our name. The Nobody But Me single is released in the late summer of 1967 and would eventually go on to reach the number eight position in the Billboard Top 100. Due to the success of the single, Capitol would give the band the go-ahead to record a full-length record. Having used the studio for their Nobody But Me sessions, as well as some of their earlier independently released material, the band decides to return once again to Cleveland Recording to make their debut album. We decided to go to Cleveland Recording because we found out that they just got an eight-track machine in. Most places were four. Uh, Gateway, you know, they had an old uh, four-track machine with the like the big knobs like you see in the old science fiction movies. And uh, so we weren't real thrilled with what we went through at Gateway. We heard about Cleveland Recording. We went up there, and the engineer was the owner. His name was Ken Hammond. And he was just absolutely a delight to work with. He'd try anything for you. You know, he just tried to do anything he could to get the sound you were looking for. was in a, a, a huge building in downtown Cleveland. There was a theater underneath it. I believe it was called the Palace Theater. Yeah, we were up, I don't know, maybe the third floor or something like that. We had to take all our stuff up in an elevator and, uh, you know, haul it into the studio. And the studio was just a flat room. I mean, it was, you know, you had the control booth. Uh, when you walked in, you walked into the control booth. And then uh, the big windows, and then you, the whole studio was out. 
with the control booth, you know, and they had a nice Steinway in the studio. Then they had an upright piano, and then they had the, the big Hammond V3. It was just, I mean, it, was, uh, it was a cool studio. Lex said, we're not going to have you come all the way out to California to record. He says, where, where would you like to record in the area? And we said Cleveland recording right off the get-go. In fact, most of the Ohio bands ended up using Cleveland recording. You know, uh, like, you know, the Fruit Gum Company and Lemon Pipers, Green Tambourine. All those songs, I mean, we run these in, into these guys constantly every day up there at Cleveland Recording. The Outsiders were there. We used the green tambourine on some of our songs for, for tambourine effect. <laughs> it, was, it was just like, you know, I mean, everybody knew everybody. Uh, what, was, what was that group? Uh, a Little Bit of Soul. I mean, you know, they all used that studio eventually. And, yeah, we don't, eight tracks, we use a lot more than eight tracks, but it, it was easier to bounce stuff, you know, like mix two tracks together with the eight track machine. It, it, it didn't have as much of a drop, you know, as multi-tracking with the four track. But that was really the reason we went there originally. And then we liked it there. We liked Ken, the engineer. And when Lex came in, Lex liked him and everything was, you know, going pretty smooth. Worst part about uh, the whole thing was we didn't know what we were doing, and, but we were trying to learn. <laughs> we got up to to record the album, and we're all looking at each other like, okay, so what are we going to do? We were not prepared. We just walked into there, and, and uh, that was it. You know, it was, we're all looking at each other trying to figure out. So Lex said, well, I got an idea here, you know, I got an idea for this. And uh, so we would start going on that. Now, um, Dick Belly wrote Flower Grave, and then he did the riff for the shaman. Uh, he came up with, and then Lex put the words to it. We, we were just kind of plugging along. But in the end, they made a record. The album opens with its title track, the band's timeless rendition of an ode to self-assuredness and pride with one's own dancing prowess. Set against an energetic R&B indebted rhythm, touches of garage rock and psychedelia 
enter the mix, creating an expertly crafted slice of perfect pop, ideal for soundtracking fight scenes in Tokyo or season premieres for beloved NBC sitcoms. Lex, he's a music major, and he taught us a whole lot about playing in the studio. Because, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. They had a nice, big Hammond B3 in the studio there. And, you know, he, he, well, he wanted, a, you know, a little bit of more of a kick on the end of the song. So he thought that that uh, organ would uh, give it a little more depth. And he was right. Yeah, he was right. We were very ignorant of music. I mean, you know, you can tell the difference between the songs we did on our own and nobody but me. I mean, Lex's knowledge of how to make things, you know, sound good. Well, I say a lot of people don't realize that there's an acoustic guitar in nobody but me. But it's not supposed to be heard as much as it's supposed to feel. It's a simple song to play, but I haven't heard any bands do it right. And for as simple a song as it is, it's just, uh, we ended up doing it and really, it, it really got thick. I don't know how it happened. I, I have to say Lex was responsible for it. You know, we just took our idea in there and he went with it. We took what we felt was the exciting part of it. You know, like when we were playing in the, crowd response and we were doing it more old style you know and but then we said hey you know we gotta dump this song or we gotta try to figure out a way to make it sound a little more current so i naturally you know i i hunted around and i said you know what thank you beatles for uh i feel fine so boom that's my guitar feeding back at the beginning of nobody with me. And, uh, and that's where I got it from. Lex cut it off. Now, on some versions, you can hear it. You'll hear me hit the strings, and then it'll build into a, a hum. But he wanted it right in, cut right in, like sounded like a car horn. And, uh, you know, I mean, the little things like that that, that, that we had disagreed on, which... You know, disagreement when you're doing stuff like that is healthy because you end up coming up with the best possible scenario. Uh, I had that Rickenbacker. I had uh, uh, a Fender Dual Showman, which was the biggest amp they made at the time. It was 85 watts, true watts, 85 watts, RMS. Bass player had a, a Dual Showman bass with uh, 215 JBLs, and I had the guitar amp with 215 JBLs and the lead player had the same thing. Bought those, put the volume knob on 10 and never touched them again. So if we played in a concert hall, we were on 10. If we played in your living room, we were on 10. That's just the way we played, wide open, you know, and uh, that Rickenbacker with that, the, the, uh, Dual Showman and the two JBLs, I could get 
any kind of feedback out of that I wanted to. I mean, it would just go all day if I wanted to. I don't know why I ever got rid of that stuff. I just I beat myself in the head every day. Following Nobody But Me is the band's take on Foxy Lady by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. He was, you know, he was the one that was always looking for new material. Well, first off, he found Fresh Cream, you know, the first album by Cream. He found that. We started doing songs off of Fresh Cream. And, uh, you know, other bands were like watching us like, where's this coming from? And then, and then we picked up uh, Hendrix, Are You Experienced? And we did a bunch of songs off that and kids were going nuts. And uh, the other bands were like, you know, because he would find these things. We, we would basically be doing them before they were really popular, it came out. And uh, so a real cool thing, we're ahead of everything usually, you know. So right after we signed up with Capitol, and this is the summer of 67, we get albums in the mail. Sergeant Pepper, and it's not released yet. So we get together and we learn Sergeant Pepper, little help from my friends, and then Sergeant Pepper reprise. So we do it all like as one thing, like a medley. And we said, this is the new stuff coming out by the Beatles. And kids are going, what the hell are you talking about? I never heard that before. I said, well, you're going to hear it. And, uh, and you know, so we're playing it and they're loving it. And then all of a sudden it came out. And they're, they're like, how did you know? Okay, but Foxy Lady, well, we did it more Hendrix style. Uh, we argued with Lex for a long time that we did not want the piano in it. You know, it took the heaviness out of it. It made it, it made it sound like, uh, you know, like the Buckinghams were trying to do a heavy song. And we did not have uh, control, capital had control. And they said, this is, this is what people want to hear. I was like, oh God, you know. So anyhow, that's, that's what happened. We have a live in Japan album. It's not very good. We didn't know they were recording it, and we did not have our equipment. I had a Japanese amplifier that was six feet tall. I'm serious. The cabinet was taller than me, and it had one eight-inch speaker in the middle of the big cabinet. 
they were like thinking, you know, if size was impressive. But uh, we had to rehearse in the afternoon, and I blew up like four of them. Couldn't even make it through any songs. So, I mean, they, they said they were running out of amps, and I was like, well, you know, I was told that my amp would be here, you know, one that I use. So anyhow, I had to turn the volume down on on that amp in order for it to not blow up. So my guitar sounds very, very chintzy. And and like I said, we did not know they were recording us. But Dick, he did a pretty decent job on Foxy Lady on the live album. You know, but much, much better than... than uh, on the Nobody But Me album. We, we, none of us were happy with that. We kind of had to eat it. Feathers, bones, beets, herbs, the ring of smoke rise higher. He's on his knees, he shakes his feet, and cast his spell upon you. Glistening body, savage mind, and trance by tongue of fire. With serpent eyes, he screams and cries to curse you with his voodoo. Written by Dick Bailey and Lex de Azevedo, The Shaman is a driving number, which displays a heavier side to the band and also acts as a showcase for Bailey's signature guitar sound. That was the song we wanted to release us as our follow-up hit to Nobody But Me. We thought it was so different that it would catch people's ear, you know. But, uh, you know, we were outvoted again. But, uh, I mean, that song came together fairly fast. There again, Dick came up with the the riff, and uh, the bass followed the riff, basically, you know. We thought it was like a sunshine of your love kind of thing, you know. It was a pretty basic song. I put uh, percussions on it. I've had people call me, you know, text me, wanting to know what kind of uh, effects box he used on that. They didn't even have effects boxes yet when we recorded that song. (laughs) He had an old, uh, I think it was a a Gibson line, it's called a Kalamazoo amp. It was a 15 watt amp. What he did was, he cut the bottom off, you know, that holds the speaker, so it was only maybe three or four inches high. And he, he took the wire that came out of the amp in, into the speaker and put a jack on it to plug it into his amp. So he, he, was, he was using that as a preamp. He would go into the Kalamazoo, crank it wide open, and then into his amp, and then he'd turn it up, and that, that was his sound.
similar in tone to the previous track, Dick Belly's Flower Grave finds the band once again utilizing buzzed out guitar to great effect, but also varying the album's sound with the added addition of a string section. They actually had uh, people from the Cleveland Symphony come in. And Lex, you know, he would do his homework at night. You know, we'd be drinking and partying and whatever, and he'd be in his room writing up uh, the uh, music for them to follow, the sheet music. He wrote out all the sheet music for everybody. And then, you know, they, they would show up and set up their stands and everything, and he'd drop the music on there and he'd go, this is what I want. Okay. You know, we were trying to go that route. That was where we wanted to go. But we had a bunch of you know, old people. You know, I mean, back then, the uh, well, even now, a lot of the execs are up there in years and everything. And it was kind of like at, at the beginning, they wanted to make a bubblegum band out of us. They figured bubblegum was really going to be the thing, you know. And I kept telling Alexa, Lex, no, this is what's going to be really popular down the road is, you know, is the, is the heavier rock stuff like Cream and Hendrix, and, you know, and then the Beatles were starting to get a little heavier. So that's the way we wanted to go. But then they kept saying no. So we have some songs that show the direction we wanted to go in. And then uh, there are songs on there that they wanted on there that we didn't feel was the right direction for us, but we didn't have control. The organ-led pop gem Dance On Through is a catchy and concise number that was provided to the band by fellow Ohioan Dick Whittington. Dick Whittington was a popular dancer in Cleveland. He used to be on up a TV show. And, and anyhow, he wrote that song. Yeah, we heard it on a tape. He submitted it to see if we wanted to do it. And like I said, nobody knew how uh, badly we needed material because we couldn't write to save our lives. But there was no call for it back in our hometown. Everybody had to do cover music or you really didn't play. So, uh, you know, we just never educated ourselves that way. So, uh, you know, uh, we're listening to these tapes and we heard Dance On Through and we said, hey, you know, Lex looks at us and we said, what do you think? He says, I think we can do something with this. You know, he said, maybe I'll make a few little chord changes and stuff. He said, and let's, let's try it like this. And, you know, it came out. The only thing that I, a little, I was a little concerned about was the organ it was kind of like going back to uh you know 
a uh, kitty pop, you know, whatever, you know. And uh, we, we thought maybe we could put, you know, like guitar stuff in there that would kind of, you know, drive it a little more. But Lex liked it. He really liked that, you know, putting that in there. So the kids liked it when we played it. You know, it was kind of the best way to put it was it fit the times, you know, that time period. The band's cover of the Bobby Blue Bland classic, Turn On Your Love Light, finds them returning to their winning combination of garage rock and R&B. Due to its similarity and feel to Nobody But Me, Capitol would release the track as a single in the spring of 68, eventually going on to be a huge hit for the group in Japan. That was another standard in Youngstown like Nobody But Me. Turn On Your Love Light, but what it was, because I used to play bass on it, and, and Mel, the bass player, used to grab my guitar and, you know, he'd be hopping around and courting, uh, because it was the, the bass line and the one guitar are just going boom, 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 boom. And so it was so easy to play that it looked like, you know, I, got, I grabbed the bass, it looked like I was doing something special. And, uh, you know, the kids like stuff like that when you, switch instruments they thought wow these guys are so cool but anyhow that's how we started it in the studio and Lex goes no we got to do something about just going boom 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 you know in the beginning he said we need something punchy so we you know we goofed around with different things from songs and everything and it kind of sounds a little like a Neil Diamond thing in the beginning the guitar is thicker you know what I mean? Uh, I think Neil, Neil Diamond used an acoustic. You know, we have the electric pounder. Now, see, on Nobody But Me, you know, uh, Lex was looking for something to... Uh, you know, brighten up the ending it again a little bit. And we were trying to figure out what it. Uh, Mel came walking out of the studio into the booth with a Pepsi bottle and a drumstick, and he was double timing on it. And Lex goes, "That's it. That's it. We'll, we'll put that in there." So uh, we put it at the end of "Turning Your Love Light" too, but I think it was too much. We were getting into the similarity of trying to end it like nobody but me. But I mean, it was you know, it was it was a moving song. They thought it would be a good follow-up for nobody but me, but it turned out it wasn't. So 
didn't do that good. You know, I mean, it, it got on the top 100, but maybe about halfway up and then it stalled. It's fun to be clean. It's fun to be clean. It's nice to be neat and clean. For people are happy when they are neat and they are clean. It's clean to be in with the many. It's fun to be in with the crowd. It's nice to talk. It's cool to With his jaunty piano and sophisticated trumpet accompaniment, the endearing oddity that is the track It's Fun to Be Clean is the band's irreverent take on Baroque pop. This was Lexi's baby. You know, he's from the West Coast. We're from Ohio. We, we're like, I don't know, peasants, I guess. But anyhow, at the time, instead of saying everything was cool, you know, we started saying, well, that's clean. That's really clean, man. And he's looking at us like, we always saying clean, you know, what's clean? He goes, that, that really, uh, you know, like uh, amuses me when you guys say, wow, that's clean, you know. He said, so uh, what do you think of this? And he's plinking on the piano and he goes, it's fun to be clean. <laughs> we're like, we're not doing that. If you want to do it, go ahead. We're not doing that. Anyhow, he talked us into it, and and it's actually a put down song. If you if you listen to it, it's fun to be clean. Is uh, like saying to the uppity people, you know, if you if you listen to the words, it, it's fun to be clean. As you know, basically as long as it makes the print uh, to help other people, you know, I, it's just a, a put down, and nobody got it. People in our hometown absolutely hated that song. They they hated it. They were, what were you thinking? And we said, well, you know, it's just something different. We're trying to show that, you know, there's more to us than just, you know, a little old rock and roll band. But that's how it happened. And I can remember the uh, trumpet player had a hard time hitting some of those notes because it really gets high. I can remember Lex telling him, look, you know, can you do this or can't you? And the guy goes, why? Well, you know, he says, I think I can. He goes, well, I think you better because that's what I'm paying you for. You know, so then the guy hit him. But what it means, he works up thinking that when we went in to do an album, we were going to do it so that we could do all the songs live. You know, we didn't want to get into production, but the Beatles kind of ruined that for everybody. You know, I, I, and I don't mean like I'm mad at them, right? but I mean, they just, everybody was trying to keep up with them. They were all failed attempts, uh, you know, so we're, we're trying to show versatility and uh, it was probably a mistake. 
on black is the color of my true love's hair. The band gives a dramatic and modernized interpretation of the traditional folk ballad, complete with string section and droning guitar. That was me crying because I didn't want to do the song. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, there again, that was that Rickenbacker. I had the uh, that whammy bar on it. And, uh, you know, just feeding it back into the amp. And, um, you know, depending on where I put my fingers, that's that's the notes that would hold. And then I just every once in a while give it a little wheel with the whammy bar. Uh, you know, just to just for a little effect. Yeah, this is another Lex idea that people would listen to it because it starts out like, you know, different and and uh, it's kind of a haunting melody. It comes out of nowhere and comes at you, you know, and then it kind of everything fades again. And I mean, it's just. Yeah, Lex was, I mean, he was, he was good at stuff like that. Uh, even if, like I said, it's our own fault because we weren't writers. You know, so I mean, whatever happened had to happen because we didn't have the writing talent to, to come up with really you know, good stuff then. So. A little bit of pain, a little bit of soul from sleeping on the ground You can't find a place in this lonely town As we near the end of the record, we get the simple yet effective track, This Lonely Town, written specifically for the band by Cleveland songwriters Alan Leatherwood and Bob Sherrill. Somebody sent us that too. That was on the tape. You know, we liked it for a slow tune. We told Lex we'd like to try to keep it, you know, as as basic as possible. It's just kind of, I don't know, just the, the feel of it being not overly produced was what we thought the song needed. It's kind of like, you know, it's a guy that's by himself I mean it just it gives you that feeling of a guy that's kind of down and out mm-hmm. 
penultimate track, Swaino, is a slow and contemplative number that was recorded during the sessions for the Nobody But Me single and represents the band's first ever attempt at songwriting. So what happened that night, he goes, what are you going to put on the other side? And we said, what are you talking about? He goes, don't put a cover on the B-side. He said, write a song. He said, because you get as much royalties for the B-side as you do for the A-side. He said, so I want you guys to go back to your hotel room, write a song, and put it on the backside and nobody but me. So we went and attempted to write the first song we ever wrote in our lives. <laughs> We're there, and we had nothing. Well, uh, the lead guitar player, Dick Belly, comes up with that chord structure. Was, it was a variation of a G, which I don't, I don't know what you'd call it. But anyhow, he did that, and then he went to an F. And I mean, it was kind of melodic. And then we're like, well, I don't know, what are we going to do for words? So I was just laying there, and I said, you know, I didn't know if it would fit or not, but I, I wrote down the beach breeze, swaying trees, the birds all singing sweetly to me. I mean, it's just, you know, I just started writing this and they, they're looking at it. And that and that was as far as I got because that's why there's only one verse in the song. You know, we we just didn't have the ability to write music. We took it back and then Lex took it, strung it out, put a, a lead guitar thing in it, and then he played the flute and, you know, expanded the song so it wasn't like 30 seconds long. <laughs> so he helped us immensely. If they would have given me a couple more years, I could have put another verse in it, you know. Sarah is the same. The album ends with the Diaz Avedo composition, Serenade to Sarah. Featuring dynamic vocals and cinematic string swells, this track, like many that came before it, shows the band branching out beyond their Youngstown cover band roots and illustrates the vital role that Diaz Avedo played in bringing this record to fruition. Stop doing their things and the whistle blows. 
That's all, Lex. Dick's singing, and I'm going chop with the guitar. Chop, chop, and uh, Lex is playing the piano. Serenade the Sarah was like, Lex, that was another song that he wrote that he really liked and he wanted us to do it. And we didn't have anything. So we went with it. I mean, it's it's a pretty song, but, uh, you know, if anybody thinks we did any good, you know, in the studio and everything, it, it's because of him. He was really, um, you know, he, he really guided us. And, and he was always very kind and gentle with us through, through everything, through all of our screw-ups and, you know, and, and uh, things that we didn't understand that he tried to make us understand that we could do. It was, it was a good experience working with him. For the album art, Capital would take control over its direction without any input from the band. No, see, there again, they brought that to us. So I hope I don't sound like a whiner. But at the time, I was the leader of the band. I was in charge of everything, you know. So I was always the one that was opening my mouth, representing everybody in the band. And uh, what they did was they thought it was cool. They took a picture of a drop ceiling, you know, the Armstrong ceilings. Um I don't know what they are, the cardboard or flake board or whatever. So they superimposed our picture over it. Now, the, the song's a hit, okay? We're touring. And girls would come up and they go, oh, your complexion's not bad at all. Because <laughs> like, I, I know that's kind of the way it looks, you know, when you look at that picture. But they thought it was cool, so they went with it. We... uh we did not get approval. We didn't have control. We were supposed to do as we were told. I mean, we well, we, we did, but grudgingly. I mean, we we uh, we couldn't keep our mouth shut about things that we didn't agree with. Capitol Records releases "Nobody But Me" in February of 1968. The album would do well enough that not long after its release. Capitol would have the band re-enter the studio along with Diaz Avedo to record their second album, Evolutions, which would be released later that year. The summer of 68 would prove to be a memorable time for the band in more ways than one, but would also signal the beginning of the end for the human beings. The summer of 68, we toured with the Beach Boys, and that's when we got to be good friends with Denny Wilson, me and the drummer. And uh, he asked us to stay at his place when we got to California, when the tour was over, you know. So we went there, and he was actually leasing the Will Rogers Log Cabin in Will Rogers State Park. That's where he was staying. And uh, so we showed up there, and there were all these weird people staying with him. And I said, hey, I said, uh, Denny. He goes, yeah. I said, who are all these people? He said, oh, I don't know. They just showed up one day and they've been living here with me. So I'm like, okay. You know, a fella comes out, sits down and starts talking some weird stuff and just like giving me the willies. He was just scary, creepy. So I told Denny, I said, hey, I forgot. We got to go over to Lex's house for a little bit and talk to him about some stuff. 
I said, okay, because we had a motor home at the time. And so I said, you know, we're, we're going to go over there. And we'll be back. And we got in the motor home and headed straight for Youngstown. A year later, I see this guy's picture in the paper that they got caught killing Sharon Tate and all that stuff. And I'm saying, I was sitting in the living room with Charles Manson. So anyhow, I get back from California. Mike and I get back. And uh, Dick Belly calls me up, says he wants to quit. Now, we had been working with the James gang because they're from our area. We were trying to get the James gang signed on Capitol. Right? Capitol agreed to let them record an album at Cleveland Recording. And they write back and say they're they're scrapping it because it's not what they're looking for. So Joe's down in the dumps, okay? Dick Belly wants to quit. So I said, hey, Joe, I said, uh, we're looking for a guitar player. You know, I said, uh, would you want to give it a shot? He's like, why not? So he came over to my mother's house garage and we jammed for a while, but it wasn't any good. He was just too damn good for us. You know, we knew he was going to be huge, but uh, we, we couldn't keep up with him. He knew it. We knew it. So I thanked him for coming. And that was that. So Dick Belly had found out that Joe Walsh was trying out for the band. Calls me up, says, I was just kidding. I'm not quitting. Due to the success of the Turn On Your Love Light single in Japan, as well as their newly released single, Hold On Baby, the band would travel to the country to do a promotional tour in April of 1969. And though their visit would be well-received and the resulting trip would produce a live album, the positive experience would not be enough to save the band. So we go through the winter of 68, we're into 69. We get all these contracts to sign about going over to Japan. So we signed, you know, contracts. We're going to be over there. It's going to be a uh, promotional blitz, you know, radio, TV shows, concerts, everything, you know. And uh, Dick Belly calls me about a week before we're supposed to leave, and he goes, I, I'm quitting. And I thought, you can't quit. Not now. He goes, why not? I said, we have to go to Japan. He's like, well, I don't want to go. I said, it's not a matter of if you want to go or not. You have to go. You signed a contract. I said, if we don't show up, you're going to be working for the rest of your life just to pay back the lawsuit that's going to hit you. So he said, all right. He said, I'll go. And, and uh, But when we get back, we're done. I said, fine. You know, we just, we just have this commitment and we have to do it. You know, we, we got on the plane in Cleveland. And uh, there was nobody else on the plane, just the four of us. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be so nice. We'll have the run of the plane. You know, it'll be great. Well, we landed in Chicago and the plane filled up. There was one seat left and it was next to Dick Belly because he had this, like, wild hair going. And most of these people were elderly and uh, they didn't want to sit by him. So anyhow, uh, the seating arrangement, I don't know how it happened, but this little old lady was sitting in the middle seat between me and Mike, the drummer, and hugging her purse. 
I remembered, I, I looked at Mike and said, Mike, I said, I still have a couple of speed pills in my pants. He goes, we'll throw them away. I said, I'm not throwing them away. I said, I can hear. I said, you take two, I'll take two. 20 minutes later, it kicks in. And so, I mean, I'm already starting to feel pretty, pretty good. And I look at this little old lady and I go, ma'am, I said, where's your husband at? She said, he's sitting up there across the aisle about, you know, three, three seats up. I said, well, all right, excuse me. You know, I got out. I went up. I said, sir. He goes, yeah. I said, why don't you go sit with your wife? He said, are you serious? And I said, go ahead, sit with your wife. You guys ought to be together. So, you know, the way the stewardess comes over, I said, he's going to sit with his wife. I'll, I'll sit in his, you know. She said, oh, okay. You know, I said, and in fact, I said, I'm, I want to buy them a drink. I said, you get them a drink. She said, okay, I'm feeling pretty good. And I turned around. I said, in fact, I'll tell you what, give everybody in the plane a drink. <laughs> so all these people are coming up and going, what are you guys doing? You know, we said, what, you know, I said, we said, we're in a band and we're going over to Japan. Nobody knows we're coming. It's a promotional thing. We're going to try to stir up some interest in, you know, in Japan. So the planes, you know, coming into land in Japan, the plane lands and there's all these kids all over the airport, the roofs and everything, signs, welcome human beings. I mean, all over the place. They had stuffed animals, flowers, toys. So anyhow, they get all the people off the plane. They pull the ramp away from the plane. They wheel up the steps because they want us to get out and wave to everybody, you know, like the Beatles did. They want the same thing there. And we're like, Geez, you know, so anyhow, they open the door and bring the steps up, hook the steps up and, we walk out and these kids started screaming and uh, they had the, their Japan national press was there taking pictures of us and we're walking in and all those stuffed animals and stuff started flying at us. It was just absolutely insane. And I, I looked at Mike and I said, you know, I don't understand this. He goes, what do you mean? I said, we're four idiots from Youngstown, Ohio. What is going on? You know, so he goes, I don't know, man. He said, but we better, you know, follow that. They had it all cordoned off with the velvet rope. And they had all, they had the red uh, carpet all the way through the airport for us. It was amazing. I went over to Dick Belly and I said, you want to give all this up? You know? He goes, I can't stand being with you guys. He said, that, you know, I'm just, I'm done. When, when this is over, I'm done. He said, all right. I said, you know, we could go back home, put together an actual concert show, come back and tour the whole country and probably be millionaires. I don't care. I don't, I don't want to be with you guys. So we played, we did. TV shows, you know, we did radio shows. So we got to the last concert. Uh, that was when they were recording us and we didn't know it. And and we were all, we didn't care what we sounded like because we knew it was over. So so we really weren't into it like we should have been, you know. And and uh, so it, it, 
I don't know if we would have tried harder if we would have known they were recording us, but we just didn't care. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's a shame that they that they were recording us because it, it didn't come out very good. So, uh, yeah, we, after that, you know, we got back on the plane and uh, when we landed in Cleveland, we went our separate ways. It was over. Though their time as major label recording artists would be short-lived, and the experience not exactly as they had anticipated, the members of the human beings managed for that brief moment to come together and, with the help of Lex Diazavedo, create for themselves a true moment of glory. And where most moments of glory are only temporary, theirs has endured, and I imagine will continue to do so, letting all who hear it know who the greatest practitioners of the shingling, the skate, the boogaloo, and the philly truly are. I'm glad we went through it. I was really glad for the experience and knowledge that it gave me because uh, now I do have the ability to come up with music. Uh, And I, I thank Lex for that. I wouldn't have missed it for anything. Music was my life back then, and uh, I'm glad I had my 15 minutes. You know, uh, the album I I think anybody that that makes music would say the same thing. It came out okay, but I I think we could have done better. You know, on some stuff, but all in all, I mean, it was uh, an experience that a lot of people don't get to go through. And, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a fun ride. There were some bumps in the road, but I'm not going to let that ruin my good memories. <laughs> thanks for listening to A Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Ting Markelin for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream Nobody But Me and more from the band on the various streaming services, or you could do it the way God intended and check out your local record store. See if you can find a copy that way. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at lovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.